Hello, everyone. Welcome to the COVID-19 ECHO session. It's my pleasure to welcome you all here to our first Region 4 project, ECHO, from the Emory University School of Medicine, run in conjunction with the Emory University Serious Communicable Diseases Program, the Emory University Office of Critical Care, excuse me, Critical Event Preparedness and Response, and the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. My name is Gavin Harris. I'm an assistant professor of medicine in the divisions of critical care medicine and infectious diseases, and I will be the facilitator for today. Before we begin, just a few housekeeping measures. We will be recording this session, and your data, while used for informative purposes, will be kept confidential. If you do have any issues during the webinar, please send an email or type in the chat. If you would like to ask a question during the session, please type it into the Q&A feature at the bottom. Lastly, we will have information for upcoming sessions on our website. And now it's a great honor to introduce our panelists for today. We have Wade Miles, the training manager for the section of pre-hospital and disaster medicine, and the operations and training manager for the Office of Critical Event Preparedness and Response, both here at Emory University. Second, we have Alex Isakoff, not only a professor of medicine, emergency medicine here at Emory and the director of the pre-hospital and disaster medicine department, but also the founding executive director of the Emory University Office of Critical Event Preparedness and Response. And lastly, one of my amazing colleagues here in infectious diseases, Xanthia Wiley. Dr. Wiley is an assistant professor of medicine, the director of antimicrobial stewardship at Emory University Hospital Midtown, a member of multiple diversity, equity, and community outreach committees and councils, and has co-led the COVID-19 Treatment Guidance Committee for Emory Healthcare throughout the pandemic. Welcome to you all. Today, we will have an introductory scenario that's followed by a didactic presentation, as well as a moderated open discussion. But before we launch into the topic, I wanted to first pose an interactive poll to our audience. How likely are you at this moment to be vaccinated against COVID-19? All right, just a few more seconds here, I think, and then we'll see if we can get those results up. Good, so almost three quarters of our audience today has already been vaccinated, which is excellent. And of course, there are some questions and concerns we can absolutely talk about. So now I'm going to turn it over to our distinguished panelists. And again, if you have answer, excuse me, questions that arise during the panel, please type them into the Q&A section and we will be monitoring this for our discussion at the end. Thank you very much. Thanks, Gavin. So hi, all. Uh, I'm Alex Isaacov uh, here at Emory University. One, I want to say I'm really encouraged by the uh, numbers that we saw in that in that poll. In fact, in some regard, you know, we might be preaching to a choir of EMS uh, personnel that are already on board with the need to get the vaccine and have gotten the vaccine, which is great. I, I still think that this webinar will be of tremendous use, hopefully to all of us, because we're often posed with questions uh, from colleagues about um, why, you know, why it, it, we should get vaccinated for, co for COVID-19. And so I think after this presentation, we'll have a much better understanding uh, about how we might an uh, answer those questions. I, I am not as encouraged, uh, and this is the scenario or case study, with, um, you know, polling colleagues at agencies where we provide medical oversight or trying to get some sense from the EMS community about their comfort level uh, with getting vaccinated. The EMS community as a whole is a little different, I think, than the, uh, than the group that we're addressing here. We wouldn't get a 95% you know, uptake in vaccine if we did a general poll of EMS community. And, and that's the case study, actually. You know, at an XYZ uh, unnamed EMS agency, as vaccine became available and emergency responders, first responders were afforded access to the vaccine. We are seeing 30% uptake among EMS personnel, you know, both field providers and then the, the uh, employees that support field operations, about a 30% uptake in uh, willingness to get vaccine. 
And so through efforts that included providing some education about the safety and the effectiveness of the vaccine, uh, what the benefits are that are incurred um, uh, for getting vaccinated, to include uh, leadership actually, you know, going one-on-one in, in fire department, uh, you know, firehouses and, and other uh, workplaces, EMS, trying to provide education about safety and efficacy I'd say, you know, at this XYZ agency, we got to about a 50% uptake, but still 50%, we would say, you know, is not enough in the EMS community. And we know that there are still a lot of questions that are driving vaccine hesitancy. You know, vaccine access should not be a problem for first responders and and those of us in the EMS uh, community. So, So there must be, you know, reasons, questions that people still have that we can't get above 50% in the sort of general, you know, EMS population at the XYZ EMS agency. And uh, my colleague of many years, Wade Miles, who spent, you know, a good part of his career um, in the field, uh, you know, side by side with, with paramedics EMTs as a supervisor and then director of operations, he, he knows what some of these questions are. Wade, what are, what are people asking in the field that that they need to have answers to before they'll feel comfortable getting vaccinated. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Um, I think some of the top questions are, um, how can we be sure the vaccine is safe? After all, it's new technology that came to market very quickly and it doesn't have full FDA approval yet. Um, Another question is, how can I be sure the vaccine is effective? I hear the vaccine may not work as well with the variant strains. I'm young and healthy. I've survived the past year. Why do I need to get a vaccine? Um, And I think the final question is, I'm worried about long-term side effects of the vaccine, and there's really no data indicating, you know, whether there's going to be long-term side effects or not. Thanks, Wade. Uh, So I think those questions and other questions that this group might have, you know, this is an opportunity for us to answer. And then hopefully you can share, you know, what you've learned here with your colleagues, and we'll try to get the rest of the EMS community as as, uh, comfortable with vaccination as this group is. Um, based on the opening poll. Uh, With that, Gavin, we're going to go back to you. Thank you so much to you both. And from myself, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Wiley, who will tackle all things vaccines for us. Dr. Wiley. Thank you very much for um, that lovely introduction. And I'm so happy to be here. So let me just share my slides. All right. So um, the... um, Title of my talk is COVID-19 Vaccines, What You Need to Know. And I cannot tell you the joy that it just brought me to see that 79% of you all have already received your vaccine. So this is is wonderful. Maybe what can come out of this is that you can help become vaccine advocates because we need as many as, as possible. So I have no disclosures. Um, The objectives of this talk is um, I want to discuss COVID-19, where are we now, which literally means where are we at this moment, because things are changing so quickly, to describe COVID-19 disparities among racial and ethnic minorities, and to discuss some of the COVID-19 vaccine basics and answer some of these um, frequently asked questions, many of them that you you all have already posed, I anticipate um, being able to answer them for you. So where are we today? So this was last night at, um, at 8 p.m. So this is a, um, a figure looking at our numbers of new cases from the beginning of, t- of the pandemic until last night. So what I think we're all really reassured by is that the number of new cases are decreasing and decreasing nicely. Thank goodness. So, you know, we've had 20, over 29 million um, um, cases reported. Um, the devastating part of this is we have lost 528,000 human beings, loved ones, cousins, preachers, teachers. So that's what's so devastating about this. And, um, you know, hospitalization, hospitalizations are down. Um, however, you know, we're, we're not out of the woods just yet. And um, I I love these maps from um, the New York Times looking at the risk of contracting COVID. This is based on cases and test positivity. So low is green, purple is extremely high. So this was actually as of this morning, what you all see, we do not see a lot of green here. We, you know, there, there's still a lot of high um, cases and test positivity. I think most of us are here in the in the southeast. There's a lot of red and a lot of purple here still, despite these 
um, decreasing cases. And if we compare this looking at September 2020, December 2020, and, and now, again, we are making you know, nice strides since December. However, we still have a ways to, to go. Okay, the, one of the ways to get there is via, via vaccination. So I always like to start off with, with, with a case because this is what it's all about. It's about patients. So I'm based at Emory Midtown. Of course, this is not the actual um, patient. So let, let's say that EMS, you all are called for a 77-year-old woman with hypertension and asthma. She's been short of breath several, um, several days. Her O2 sats upon your arrival are 84% um, on, on room air. I can guarantee that guarantee you that a lot of you have seen many Mrs. Jones over the, over the past year. Um, not surprisingly, Mrs. Jones was ultimately diagnosed with, with COVID. What I can say is the very first patient that I took care of at Emory Midtown, this was Friday, March 13th, first patient I took care of was Black, the second Black, the third Black. So I saw very early on the disproportionate effect that this has had on the um, um, minority community. And we've all heard COVID is disproportionately affecting our Black, Indigenous, and Latinx and, and other peoples of color markedly. And if we look at this, this is, this is from the CDC looking at COVID-19 cases hospitalizations, and deaths by race and ethnicity. So what we have here, our comparator is going to be white non-Hispanic persons. And let's look at American Indian, Asian, Blacks, and, um, and Hispanics. So we're gonna look at cases, hospitalizations, and, and deaths. So let's just start off with hospitalization. So if you are Black or Hispanic, there is a 2.9 times or um, and 3.2 times increased rate ratios for hospitalization and an increased um, rate and likelihood of death, 1.9 times for, um, for Blacks or African-American and 2.3 for Hispanics and, um, and, and Latinos. Why? You know, we, we've heard a lot over the last year with respect to why. So if we know that there's a lot of health inequity um, in racial and ethnic minority groups. And, you know, we have to be honest with ourselves. A lot of this is longstanding systemic health and social um, um, inequities and systemic racism. We have to we have to do better. What are some of the increased risks of contracting COVID in minority communities? Decreased access to, to testing. If you don't have a primary care physician, if you have difficulty with transportation to get, to, to get tested, that's a problem. Living in high density settings. If you live in a multi-generational home where there's you know, great grandmother or grandmother all the way down to, to toddlers, if there's someone who has to leave and go to school and go, go, go to work, that's going to increase the likelihood of everyone in that household contracting COVID. Exposure to pollution, pre-existing um, um, health conditions, and being an essential worker. If you have to leave your home, if you don't have the luxury of staying at home like a lot of us do and working remotely, you're at increased um, likelihood of contracting COVID. And this is on top of what we already know, that there is racial bias in healthcare as with you know, many, many other um, sectors in the, um, in the, in the workforce. So this is why it's you know so important to talk about COVID and talk about the basics of the um, of these vaccines, so that I want everyone to be to be vaccinated. But you know we really have to um, target our efforts to the minority communities, and some of this is just you know addressing some of the basics. So when we talk about COVID vaccines, the key antibody response that we want to get is from the S protein, okay? So each of the currently av um, available vaccines are Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson. We're trying to target this spike protein. So a lot of people always ask, tell us about the messenger RNA. You know, how does this work? Is this, is this safe? So this is a nice um, schematic from the NIH looking at mRNA um, with respect to spike protein of a coronavirus. So I like to think about messenger RNA as a blueprint, okay, for the creation of this spike protein. So this is not a live, a, a live virus at all. You're trying to develop that spike protein so that your body can develop antibodies to it. So this messenger RNA, and it's usually wrapped in a little bit of um, a, a lipid surrounding, is 
injected into your, your body, the messenger RNA is then subsequently kind of translated into the spike protein and your body develops the antibodies, okay? And so that if or when you are exposed to, to COVID, you already have antibodies within, within your system. So we have two currently available mRNA vaccines. I think a lot of people have heard about Pfizer and Moderna. And these are vaccines that you have to give two doses of. With Pfizer, it's separated by 21 days, Moderna, 28 days. So these are our messenger RNA um, um, viruses, um, I'm sorry, um, vaccines. So a lot of people ask, oh, is this going to be incorporated into my DNA? The answer to that is absolutely not. With respects to tracking systems, of course, I'm, I'm sure that this audience knows that absolutely not, that that does not happen. Um, so with respects to viral vectors, so um, the first two were messenger RNA vaccines and the new Johnson & Johnson is a viral vector vaccine, okay? And take a look at the light pink bubble here. So um, what, we, what you have is an adenovirus, which is a type of, of cold virus, okay? That is inactivated, it's not a live virus, but it is used to carry a lot of this genetic material, okay? Um, from, for, from the vaccine, it's injected, of course, in, into your, your arm. And the whole point is also to stimulate the development of that spike protein, not there's no live virus uh, again, so that you will have those antibodies um, available. So that's the difference between the two and the one viral vector vaccine that we currently have available in the United States is the, um, is the Johnson & Johnson. And I think most of you all know that that is one injection compared to the two with the messenger RNA. So what side effects should one expect after the, the COVID vaccine? So this is really a, a, a common question. So I like to think about adverse um, events as there's a term that we call reactogenicity, which is common and anticipated. And then, you know, we have, have safety data. So reactogenicity, these are really common, anticipated. Most patients or, you know, most recipients will, will have them include sore arm. You know, you may have some redness around the site. Myalgias, arthralgias, and fatigue are the most common. Headache, nausea and vomiting, and fevers are, are less common. So some people like myself, I was lucky enough when I got it, I had a very sore arm after the first dose of my, my Pfizer vaccine um, and I had absolutely no other symptoms. Okay. I have a close friend who developed, you know, fevers and chills and was in bed for, for a day. The key is reactogenicity is a good thing. It lets you know that the vaccine is actually, um, actually working. What can you do to help with these symptoms? Ibuprofen. And, and Tylenol. And the great thing about them also is they're very short-lived. We're talking 24 to, to 72 um, hours. So the mRNA vaccines are more reactogenic than the, the Johnson & Johnson. So for both the mRNAs, um, these reactogenicity adverse events, and I even hate to call them adverse events or adverse more like side effects happen in about 80% of patients. And it's less so with the Johnson & Johnson, like 40 to 50% um, or so. And next, let's talk a bit about safety. So again, reactogenicity is a great thing. It means that your immune, your immune system is working and you're making antibodies. So everyone, this is everyone's concern with respects to are COVID vaccines safe? The short answer is, Yes, they, they, they are safe. So especially with the mRNA vaccines, everyone is so concerned about the rapidity that these vaccines were developed. It happened too quickly. We, you know, we're concerned about something happening so quickly. So what I like to tell everyone is that each of the phases that are necessary for FDA licensing and approval, all of these vaccines have gone through all of, of these phases. Phase one, where you start off with 20 to 100 healthy volunteers, making sure that they're tolerating it okay, making sure that you know um, we have great safety signals, then proceeding to phase two, which is um, usually several hundred um, volunteers, then on to, to phase three. And for the two messenger RNA vaccines, we're talking about 70,000 human beings who were in these vaccine um, studies. And what I'm also really pleased about is 
um, underrepresented minorities were represented um, appropriately in, in these studies, as were male, female, um, and, and those with comorbidity. So we have great representation. So the key is no steps were skipped. Okay. And also, even after you get the, the vaccine, the CDC and other organizations are following, you know, safety data really closely. So there's two major um, safety reporting systems. We have the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System and the VSAFE um, Checker. And the wonderful thing about the VSAFE is, most of you all know this, when you go and get your, your vaccine, they likely sent, you know, gave you a handout that said you can kind of, you know, log on using this app to monitor monitor your symptoms. So we're watching safety data extraordinarily um, close. So how common are severe reactions with, with these COVID vaccines? The answer is they're extraordinarily rare. How rare? We're talking one in millions, okay, who may have a, um, a severe reaction such as anaphylaxis. And I know you all know what, what anaphylaxis is. And shortly, I'll show you that you will be monitored 15 to 30 minutes after you receive your vaccine, just to ensure that you're not going to have a severe reaction. And if you do, you're, you're there and someone can um, provide medical attention. So another question that I receive a lot is, what if I have latex allergies, food allergies, pet allergies, medication allergies? I hear a lot about penicillin allergies. Is it safe to get the COVID vaccine? The long and short of this is, is yes. I have a documented penicillin allergy, whether it's real or, or, or not. I receive my vaccine and it's com completely safe. And what I like to tell people as well is if you are really concerned, try not to make that decision on your own to say, I have a medication allergy. No, I'm not going to get it. Speak to your primary care doctor. They may refer you to, to an allergist, but don't give up just because you're afraid that you have, have an allergy. So who should absolutely just not receive a, a COVID-19 vaccine? We're talking Pfizer, Moderna, and, and Johnson & Johnson. So on the CDC's website, they make it very clear there are two, two groups. If you've had a severe or immediate allergic reaction to any COVID vac vaccine, so if you got the first dose and you had a really severe um, reaction, you either should not get a, a second dose or if you're going to receive the second dose, you should probably have an allergy um, specialist to evaluate you prior to the to, to consideration. And the other group is if you've had an immediate allergic reaction to something called PEG, which is polyethylene glycol, or polysorbate, okay? Because a lot of the lipid nanoparticles that surrounds the, the, um, the vaccine itself contains that. So polyethylene glycol, for those of you who don't know what it is, it is in some osmotic laxatives like um, Miralax. So I personally don't know any person who's had a severe reaction to, to, to Miralax. And polysorbate is also a binder and a stabilizer in some medications. So if you have a question, you have a severe reaction, call your local pharmacist to say, does, you know, um, is polysorbate in X medication? So these are really the only two groups that just should not receive the, the vaccine. So this is, you know, 99.9% .9 of the rest of us are um, should be eligible. Just in case you know someone who doesn't have a doctor or doesn't have health insurance, and if they ask you, can I still get the COVID vaccine? That answer is yes. Cost is not an obstacle in getting vaccinated against COVID-19, okay? And even when you, if you get it at, you know, in your larger healthcare um, system, the vaccine itself, okay, is not being charged to you, but possibly administration, like paying the nurse to, to, to give it to you, et, et cetera, that may be the cost. You go to the health department, you're not going to pay one dime to get your, your vaccine. Now, what if you already had COVID? or you know someone who had, or you have antibodies, or you know someone else who has antibodies. What does that, what does that mean? So you are still eligible for these COVID vaccines and you should receive them. So who should not get it? If you have active COVID with fevers and chills and diarrhea, and you have active symptoms, you should not receive the vaccine at that time. However, as soon as you are asymptomatic, 
and you know you're not um, having to isolate yourself anymore, then you can go and go and get your your vaccine. And I know there was a, a a question that had already been submitted with respects to, you know, if you know of someone who's had post acute COVID syndrome, should they receive the the vaccine? The answer is yes. We don't have any evidence just yet to say those. Um, people should not receive the vaccine. So I would recommend for, for anyone that the answer is um, would be yes. Why? Why get it? You know, a lot of you all are, are likely healthy and, you know, strapping young men and, and women. Why? I think, uh, you know, most of us know if you're going to have antibodies to, to COVID, it's so much safer to get it via vaccination rather than um, contracting the, the disease. It's the safest way to build protection. And yes, it's a personal decision. And you may do this for yourself and to help protect your family, but all of us are ready to get out of this pandemic. All of us miss, miss our lives. So that as well. And some of the best news that I heard came on this past Monday, where the CDC has issued their first set of guidelines on how fully vaccinated people can visit safely with others. So finally, those, the 79% of you who've, who've been vaccinated, two weeks after that, your, um, your, your vaccination, you can visit with other fully vaccinated people indoors, no masks, no phys, um, um, physical distancing. You can visit with unvaccinated people who are from a single household who are at low risk for severe COVID-19, okay, without wearing masks, without um, physical di distancing. And you can refrain from quarantine and testing following known e exposures. I'm so excited about this. The next time I can see my grandparents, both of them have been vaccinated, fully vaccinated, my, my mother, I can hang out with them, no masks, no physical distancing. We can kiss, we can, you know, hug. I, I look forward to that and I'm sure you do as well. So um, again, we all need to be vaccine ambassadors. So what I, I tell people is please try to obtain your vaccine information for you and your family from a reputable site not necessarily Instagram or what your friend says or what this site says. Just go to the site that has the best information. And what I love about the, the CDC's website, they have really lovely patient-friendly information on, on vaccines, okay? So just Google CDC COVID vaccines. And when it, when it pops up, it's gonna say healthcare professionals or you know, essentially um, you know, family and, and, and personal um, information. Just click on that for you and your, your family. So when will you have the chance to get your vaccine? So uh, this differs for, um, for every state. So as of yesterday, if you um, take a look here, um, you'll see the proportion of patients who have actually already received um, one dose. And um, I'm not sure how many of us are here in, in Georgia. So Georgia, we're in the, the gray, so pretty low on fully vaccinated. And we go all the way up to Alaska, who is um, um, over, over 20%. So I'm not going to go through all of these states, but um, up at the top, what you see here is U.S. total. So 19% of the entire population has received at least one shot. Thank goodness. And we have about 10% who are fully vaccinated. So these are each state, but I wanted to kind of point out who's leading Connecticut, Alaska, and South Dakota. And I um, read this morning that Alaska is actually opening up soon if they haven't already done so. And they're vaccinating, offering vaccinations to anyone over the age of, of, of 16. Who has a lot of work to do? Georgia, my um, most of our, our, our home state. So we are the at the bottom of the um, continental states. So room to plenty of, of, of room for improvement. But to answer the question, when can you get vaccinated in your state? What I would recommend is going to your state's health department um, resources, and they're typically nice and updated in, in each state. So when you go get your COVID vaccine, you know, those of you who haven't been vaccinated yet, what can you expect? So you can expect to still wear your mask, that you will be um, socially um, distanced. And you're going to receive a little card after you get vaccinated um, that will um, say, what was the date that you received it? Exactly what did you get? Which type of vaccine? What, what lot it, it was? So hold on to, to, to that. A lot of people are asking, you know, will this be used, you know, moving forward for um, airports, um, travel, et cetera? I don't think we know that yet. 
And then you're going to, going to be observed. So again, if you're going to have a severe reaction, especially those IgE mediated anaphylactic reactions, if someone has had anaphylaxis to another medication in the past, they're going to be monitored for 30 minutes. So you're either likely gonna be sitting in an area, socially distanced, nursing staff, EMS staff, someone will be there to observe you. After that 30 minutes, you're good to go. Everyone else, 15 minutes and, and you're good to go. And the reason for this is most of these reactions that you know extraordinarily rare, but if they're gonna happen, happen within the, um, the, the first um, 30 minutes. So what about all of these um, variants? So yes, we know that there are, are, are variants, okay? Every, there's a lot of talk out there about the UK and the South African and the um, Brazilian variants. Um, we're seeing more of them in, in Florida, but what I really like to tell people is that, am I surprised that we have variants? No, I'm not. Is, should any of us be surprised? We should not, because this is what viruses do. Viruses mutate, and when you have a very high amount of virus in the, in the community, this is why we're seeing these mutations. So the key to know is that thus far, studies suggest that antibodies generated through each of these vaccines, okay, recognize these variants, and of course, we're closely monitoring it. So yes, there are variants out there. Should this change or delay you getting your vaccine? No. Another question that we get a lot of is, will you require a booster later? We don't know, possibly, but at least for now, let's just go ahead and get our, our initial um, vaccines. Um, and you know, why is it so important to me to kind of you know, talk about and, and discuss these, these variants? Um, these demographics are important because there is hesitancy, I think, in many communities, but definitely in Black and other underrepresented um, communities in the, in the U.S. So it's important for us, all of you, me, to be advocates for the vaccine for all of our, our patients. And if we look here at, this is from the CDC, I um, pulled this up this morning, of the 62 million people who've gotten one or more doses, we have race ethnicity data available for 53%. So let's take a look at Hispanic and Latinos. In the U.S. population, they make up 18% um, of the U.S. population, but however, have only received 8.5% of the, the persons who've received um, vaccines. Um, with Blacks, we make up 13% of the U.S. population, and that, as you can see here, 7.2% of persons um, vaccinated. So this is why it's important for us to recognize these, di these disparities and, you know, make sure that we're ensuring that there is access and ed education. So back to Mrs. Jones, of course, this was not the actual patient, but Mrs. Jones is my grandmother, okay? And this is why it is personal to me. It, it's, I'm sure it's personal to, to all of us. This is why vaccination is, is important to me. I look forward, this is my mother, my grandmother and myself. I look forward to spending time with them, you know, hanging out, being able to kiss my grandmother on, on, the, on the cheek. And it's not just about my family. We've had over 500 million human beings, okay? So this is from the New York Times this, this, this morning, thinking about the loss in, in America. We have lost, you know, loved ones, preachers, teachers, children. This is why it's, um, it's so important. So I will um, stop there and thank you all um, very much for your attention. I hope you learned something and I'm happy to answer other questions. Xanthia, thank you so much for that. Excellent presentation, especially for the, the personal notes there at the end. I think we can certainly all relate to that. And thank you to Alex and, and Wade for setting the stage as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think we're going to now open the forum for a, a moderated uh, discussion. And we've already had some uh, very interesting and important questions and concerns come through. So I think we'll get started. The first question I think I'm going to direct to you, Xanthia. And this is a question about reactogenicity. And it's a question about reactogenicity between both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. Uh, there have been reports in the press of differences uh, with women experiencing more side effects, perhaps with uh, the Moderna vaccine. Uh, and there's a question about whether, you know, there is this difference in reactogenicity. And if, if there is, you know, do we know anything about perhaps causative factors? No, that's, a, that's an excellent question. So I have not heard anything about the um, sex differences in reactogenicity, at least not in the medical um, literature. 
So what we have to be careful about is comparing. Yes, there, um, both Pfizer and Moderna are two mRNA um, vaccines. However, the amount of individual components differs be between the, the, the two. So yes, we know that in general, Moderna has been shown to have some um, increased reactogenicity. And again, I want people to, to recognize that reactogenicity, these are transient effects. So might someone who, have, who receives Moderna have, you know, maybe more sore arm, more aching, et, et cetera, possibly, but please try to, let's try to focus um, on um, effectiveness. And this is something that I did not bring up and I, sh I should have is that the um, effectiveness with preventing hospitalization and death is equivalent so there were no deaths in these vaccine vaccine trials in patients who received either the mRNA via, um, vaccines or the the Johnson and Johnson. Because we're here, I'm I'm hearing a lot, and I'm sure you all are as well. Like, oh, you know, the Johnson and Johnson's not as good. It's second line. I would prefer to have the um, um, Moderna or, or Pfizer. I recommend getting the first thing that, that, that is available. If in December, Johnson & Johnson was available for me, that would have been the first thing that I, I, I would have received because of decreased likelihood of hospitalizations and, um, and, and death. So, so great questions. Yes, there's a, a, a difference in the reactogenicity, but again, those are transient effects. Thank you, great, great answer. Um, and then the next question, actually, I would love to get both both sides. So both from an EMS perspective, uh, Wade, and then and then also from the physician perspectives as well from from Xanthi and Alex. This is a question about um, community fear or distrust of vaccines. Uh, Xanthi, you did touch on it in terms of concerns over whether um, the vaccine might or might not alter a person's DNA, and I think the the answer was was pretty clear on that. I wonder if you could just perhaps expand uh, on that a little bit perhaps to give us a little, some more, you know, hard and fast kind of ideas from that. And then waiter, Alex, I'd be curious to know what you might recommend to EMS providers in terms of discussing this with their communities, you know, taking the knowledge that, that Xanthia has given us. Are there ways you might approach this in discussions, people you meet on the street, um, you know, or events that might arise, uh, EMS events that might arise in the community? So I'll, I'll, I'll start. So um, with respects to trust in the in the community i think the key especially for the black community is acknowledging the history like it is okay to say i i know the reason for lack of trust is because of tuskegee and henrietta lacks etc so we know that however what will we do with that information are we going to allow that history to prevent us from taking care of ourselves etc et of course that, that, that answer is, is no. Um, with respects to messenger RNA, so to get back to that, the, the key is everyone's kind of concerned about it um, incorporating, incorporating itself into the DNA. That does not happen. Mm -hmm. And another question that I receive is, well, how long do those proteins remain in, in my body? You know, are the proteins just going to be kind of hanging around? No, they will automatically degrade. However, the wonderful thing is, is that the memory, your antibodies, are, are, are there, will, will remain. Thank you. And, and perhaps, you know, Wade, are there some strategies that, that you've, you know, found or noticed to kind of address this with the communities directly? So I think everybody on this call has already kind of taken the first step and that's educating themselves, you know, getting the, the best education from the, uh, from the experts. You know, we've got to try to um, guide people to the CDC, you know, website and other reputable websites to get the uh, information. We got to get away from the, you know, I heard this, I heard that, you know, um, type talk and um, just, just educate them. Right. We're going to move on just a little bit. There's a, a lot of questions that have come in with regards to pregnancy, um, especially, uh, and, and even postpartum and breastfeeding women too. In Xanthia, I'm going to have to, you know, task you with this to perhaps address this directly. Um, you know, there's a question, of course, uh, have there been any, any updates on data that we've received? And we know, you know, in some of the trials, there were women who became pregnant throughout them, but who didn't seem to have any untoward effects. But I'm wondering if you could expand on, on issues surrounding this. 
Absolutely. So um, understandably, a lot of young, young women who are getting pregnant, breastfeeding, having babies, hoping, hoping to have babies are, are concerned about, about this. So what I love about the ACOG, the American College of um, Obstetrics and, and Gynecologists, they've been um, wonderful about coming out and saying that there is no evidence Okay, that one should not, number one, receive the vaccine if they're pregnant. Number two, should not um, breastfeed, okay, um, if they've gotten the vaccine or that um, breastfeeding would prevent them from getting the vaccine. And number three, with respect to fertility, you know, there's a lot out there about, oh, if I get the vaccine, this is going to, uh, to affect my fertility. So all, all of those answers are, are no. So again, there were women in, um, all of these trials who got the vaccine and subsequently got, got pregnant. And to my, my knowledge, there is no evidence out there that says that there has been harm to um, the fetus slash the, the, the baby or any other complications. Great, thank you. And then Alex and Wade, I, I'd be curious to know too, what do you, what do you tell your, you know, the, the EMS providers who may be able or who are able to get the vaccine, but their concerns about you know, the protection of their families? Are they safe to go to work? Are there any side effects that they should worry about in passing along to their families when they come home? Whether people in their household may be at high risk, but are just unable to get the vaccine yet? How, how do we kind of approach this? Well, I think, Gavin, thanks for the question. There's a lot of questions uh, to unpack. It's there. But the first is, um, you know, is your fam are your family members better served from a safety perspective if you're vaccinated? And, and we're going to say the answer to that question is yes. I mean, you see a lot of discussion about whether, well, a lot of discussion about the vaccine reducing uh, death, redu reducing hospitalization, reducing um, uh, serious illness, or eliminating those you know, possibilities. Um, there's a lot of discussion about whether or not vaccine reduces transmission. Right now, the answer to that is not definitive, but I would say based on the data that's available, uh, we could comfortably say that you're less likely to transmit the virus if you've been vaccinated than if you have not been vaccinated. So getting the vaccine is protective for you. And though we can't say how much, it's protective for your family members too, uh, because you are less likely to transmit the virus if you were to contract it. You may not contract it at all because you've been vaccinated, but even if you were to contract it, you're probably shedding less virus. Um, and so it's protective for the family. Um, in terms of the reactogenicity, of course, it's you as the individual that got vaccinated that's going to, you know, suffer the sore arm or the myalgias, the fatigue, and not your family members. And so I think that that's the, the beginning of the answer to your question. There's, you know, there are a lot of other questions that can come from that. Well, uh, do I still need to be careful around family members who are at high risk and who haven't been vaccinated? Yes, you still need to be careful around, you know, high risk family members who have not yet had the opportunity to get vaccinated but you are providing uh, better protection than if you weren't vaccinated at all. Great, great, thank you. Another several questions that have come in, um, and, and Xanthi, I'm gonna direct this, these to you, and, and that is in regards to reactogenicity symptoms and how do we treat them at home perhaps? Are there specific recommendations of, you know, to use kind of over-the-counter medicines? Of course, there's concern about, you know, taking medicines that might impair our ability to work. Um, so that's one piece of it. And then Wade, to you as well, what, what might you recommend to EMS personnel who are getting the vaccine? What might they uh, want to expect? Are there things that they should do uh, in, in the workplace as well that you know, they should be aware of? So Xanthia, let, let's start with you. Sure. So um, with, with those symptoms, um, most of them taking Tylenol or ibuprofen is absolutely, absolutely fine. And if you have, have to alternate Tylenol, ibuprofen, Tylenol, ibuprofen, that, that's completely fine with, um, with hydration. So something else, let's say if you're concerned about getting the vaccine and then, hey, you have to go out and, and work in the field the, the next day, you can attempt to schedule your, your vaccine on a Friday if you happen to be off on the, the, the weekend to allow yourself some time to, to, to relax if you feel like you know that 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 would help. It wouldn't have been an issue for me, but one of my close girlfriends who, you know, she did feel um, feel poorly that that second day. So also, you know, try to time your vaccine when you're not when you're not working, if that's if that's possible. 
Sure. Great. Wait, any, any additional thoughts? I can speak my own personal experience. I did have to take a day off from work after the second dose of my vaccine. Um, so just to give some little uh, additional personal perspective, but Wade, please. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Um, I had my second dose on Friday and the following day I was lethargic all day. I wouldn't have been able to work if I was scheduled. Um, so I think that's great advice. I think um, <clears throat> advice that I would give to um, service leaders would to um, not do your entire department at once, mm -hmm. right? You know, kind of spread it out so you don't have your entire department, you know, pulling out for the next, you know, few days or something. So, you know, kind of spread the spread it out for, for those reasons. Okay, wait, great. Wait, that's a great point. Great point. Yeah. We have a little bit of time for, for just a few more questions. And I just want to make a note that if we're unable to get to all of your excellent questions today, we will make either an addition to the podcast, which will be made available next week on our website, or we will be typing answers uh, online and we will be able to send them out when this becomes available. But there are a few important questions here that I, th I think we should address that have come through. One uh, is that, do we think that this vaccine is going to be something we will need yearly boosters for, for like influenza? Is this something that we should be concerned about with multiple, say, mRNA vaccines on top of each other? You know, are, are these things that, you know, our audience should really be concerned about? Uh, Xanthia, why don't we start with you and then perhaps Alex, if we could get your thoughts as well. That sounds great. So those are fabulous questions and I wish I knew the answer to them, but what we have to say is we, we, we don't know, we don't know. So I don't, I don't know if, you know, this, this next season we will require another, you know, vaccine or, or, or booster. And I don't think any, anyone knows the, the answer to that. And also with respects to messenger RNA, you know, will there be long-term um, side effects from messenger RNA um, vaccines? We don't know the um, answer to that as well. Knowing that um, long-term side effects from vaccines, period, are highly unlikely and rare. There's nothing that would make me think that these messenger RNA vaccines would be um, any any different. So if I was told that I would need a booster, you know, next season with another mRNA um, 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 vaccine, but I have an issue receiving it, not at all. Great, thank you, Alex. Any additional thoughts? I'll just echo Xanthia's comments. You know, one. The reason we don't know the answer definitively about whether or not there'll be need for a booster is we don't know how long the um, you know, protective effects of the vaccine are going to last, but that data is going to evolve and we're going to learn the answer to that question. Um, the other possibility is that there's a, a particular strain or variant that comes on the scene that the vaccines prove less effective for at preventing death, preventing hospitalizations, preventing serious illness, in which case there may need to be in a, a booster to adjust to that variant. That's a possibility. Uh, I think what I've learned from my virology friends is that the messenger RNA technology actually allows for that booster vaccine to be pretty rapidly created and produced, maybe in contrast you know, to other vaccines that we, uh, see that require, you know, booster shots. And so I think that's the good news as well about the messenger RNA technology in particular. Great, thank you. So um, I think we have time for, for one more question and it's an extremely important question that I know Xanthia is close to your heart. Um, we've had several actually come through up over the course of this discussion with regards to the distrust of the technology, the distrust of government. Um, and I really would be curious to, to get to know, of course, your thoughts, but also that of, of Wade and, and Alex in, in combating this, but maybe that's really not the right word in, in reassuring uh, our communities, especially the underserved populations and our communities of color. You know, for a long time, of course, we have cited a Tuskegee study, which Xanthia, you, you alluded to. So why don't we start with you, Xanthia? How, you know, can we help our EMS providers and personnel, um, you know, reassure the communities in which they serve? Absolutely. So yes, it is near and dear to, to my heart. So what I would say is number one, acknowledging it, you know, so you can't say, oh, that happened in the past, forget about that. We have to acknowledge it and, and understand it and educate people on a level that makes sense to, to them. Okay. And I think another huge key is you have to um, engage community 
leaders. Okay. I can talk all day long. Even I'm a black woman, but I can still talk all day long. But sometimes if a person doesn't hear it from their pastor, from, you know, someone in their, um, um, in their community, someone in their fraternity and, and um, sorority, it, the message may not, you know, get a, get across. So that's why what I've, I've been doing and so many of us have been doing is reaching out to the, to the faith, faith leaders and meeting people in their, in, in their communities. So it's education, community involvement, community in, engagement, you know, and those of you EMS, if there's a certain area that you serve and, a, you know, you happen to stop and get coffee, et cetera, at a certain place in, in said community and people are used to seeing you, bring, bring, bring it up. Hey buddy, how, how, how you doing? You feeling okay? What do you think about COVID? Have you gotten your vaccine? I got, I got mine. So we need advocates for these, these, these vaccines from people who, you know, underserved communities, um, no. Great, thank you. Uh, Wade, please, your thoughts. Yeah, I think Xanthia really um, packed it up nicely. I, don't, I really don't have a whole lot to add to that other than, you know, being, the, being an example, you know, getting the, the vaccine, um, talking about it, you know, being open with your family and friends and, and even strangers, you know, just, you know, tell them the experience you had and, uh, and just be honest with them. Right, sure. So, I mean, the, the theme we're getting really is that these are very real concerns and they need to be validated um, and, and people need to be heard in order to have a launching point to have these important discussions. Yes. Uh, Alex, any final thoughts from your side? On that point, uh, you know, I think the important thing that, that's been said already is that people got to hear this from a source that they trust, right? And so I think a lot of you on this call are trusted uh, voices in your own communities, you know, in your own fire station, in your own workplace. So, um, you know, do your part to be an advocate. I think the other thing that we can do as, as um, agencies, as systems, as, as, and as communities is to create incentives. You know, in addition to providing that education and the trusted voice, create incentives for getting vaccinated. I think the CDC has, has started to do that very well by, um, you know, loosening the restrictions for people that have been vaccinated, you know, around small groups that are low risk and have been unvaccinated or among vaccinated people um, that they can, you know, congregate in small groups without wearing masks. Um, I mean, that's very liberating. Um, it's a great incentive. So trusted voices, creating incentives. Great. Well, unfortunately, I think we're out of time at the moment for uh, the remaining questions, but as I said before, we will be making, in addition to our podcast or our um, hard materials to address the remaining questions that you have. Thank you all very much to our panelists. This has been a fantastic discussion. Thank you so much to our audience as well. Uh, you guys are really why we are here and we hope that you uh, have, have learned something and have gained some, something from our, our session. Well, all thank you very much to the panelists, to our support group here uh, at Project Echo, NETEC, and Emory University. And hopefully we will see you all again very soon. Thank you.